What is up, folks? Today, we're talking 16 closing in Chicago, kind of. An update from the author of that Noma story that we covered a few weeks ago, Airbnb news out of New Orleans, a new modernist cuisine cookbook, and what chefs cook on their day off, coming up. Welcome back to the show. My name is Justin Kana. This is episode 58 of The Emulsion. If you're new here, this is a show where I talk all about the news stories and industry happenings that matter to me as I'm navigating my career as a professional chef. And then I give a little bit of my insight that I've gained over the past nine years in this industry. I've gotten into a really interesting rhythm with the shows lately for the next um, 10 or so weeks. It's gonna be this kind of alternating style of shows. So one week is gonna be a solo focused news episode. A lot of questions from you folks included in that followed by an interview episode. Uh, so next week, is gonna be an interview show, and then it's gonna alternate back and forth. I've got five of them already recorded, and then two more on the calendar that I need to record. So I'm really, really excited to get those published and shared with you folks. I've interviewed uh, donut shop owners just opening their first brick and mortar, chefs turned authors and public speakers. I've actually been interviewed myself about social media on another uh, ladies podcast that I'm super excited to share, and so much more. If you're just like, Justin, I never got a heads up about those uh, interview episodes. I have a solution. I now have a solution and it looks something like this. So I have created a great Google form where you can go, you can see upcoming guests, uh, who they are, when we're gonna chat and when, what I'm planning on covering in those episodes, the questions that I'm planning on asking. And then best of all, you can ask your questions and then get featured on the show. Uh, if it sounds like something you'd be like to be a part of, go ahead and head over to justinconnacom slash podcast. Uh, it looks something like this. And then there's a question. Uh, well, there's a box actually that says submit a question. It looks like this. Go ahead and click on that. And then that will lead you to this handy dandy Google form that I've created. You can submit your questions, see the next guests that are coming up. Uh, and then I would love to feature your questions and I have a little section in there where you can include your social media handle as well and I'll give you a little handy dandy shout out. Uh, now is normally when I talk about our sponsor, you folks on Patreon, which is 100% true. Shout out to Matt White in Australia for being the newest supporter, uh, not just on Patreon, but on the highest tier of Patreon. So thank you so much for your support, Matt. It means the world, but in addition to all the awesome folks on Patreon, I'm building out a way for you to support me for next to free. I like to call it next to free, and that's on Twitch, a new platform that I'm looking to leverage for its great live streaming capabilities. We're recording the show on it right now. That will be then published to YouTube as a video. Uh, I made a video all about the details. Uh, if you wanna check that out, it is on YouTube. So if you're someone who wants to support me, but you haven't been able to for whatever reason, I'd love for you to follow me on twitch.tv slash Justin Kana. Uh, I just got approval to shoot DOD in a really exciting space here in Seattle. And that ball rolling has me really, really excited. So today's beverage, like I said, it's not coffee to the people who were here before. It is a kombucha that I'm drinking out of a uh, coffee mug just because it has a nice convenient handle. And it is a Earl Grey kombucha from this company right here in Seattle. The, the office I work out of has it on tap, so I'm always sipping the booch, as they say. Uh, first up, and an update to a story we covered a few weeks ago about Noma. I freaking called it, right? Like this this George guy, George Reynolds, wrote this article. I covered this article a couple uh, weeks back. 
He's from Eater in the UK, and he wrote all about Noma's uh, quote-unquote screwed because they're two heads down and they don't embrace other cultures enough. And I reached out to him, and I'm reading uh, what I said on the uh, Instagram uh, DM that I sent him. I said, hey, George, just reading your piece on Noma 2.0, really interesting perspective. Did you ever get it? Did you ever get to have a meal at Noma, new space or old? And he freaking responded. He goes, hi, Justin. Thanks for reading. I've never eaten there, old or new, though I've tried to get a reservation a billion times. Have you managed to get in? And I responded with, yeah, I went for lunch a few years ago and I actually staged for a week in 2011. And to that, no response. Like, what? The fuck, George Reynolds. I'm not gonna rant any further on this. This answer hopefully speaks volumes. Like, how are you gonna judge a restaurant and then give them advice on how to frickin' run their business when you haven't even experienced it yet? I just, uh, I wanna take a play from Donald Trump on his on this one and share this exchange on Twitter and just be like, sad, period. But I'm not going to. I'm not that kind of a media person. I don't wanna start fights. I don't care about sensationalism or getting attention just for being controversial, but I just wanna emphasize again, this is why I started this show. If you're in the industry and the only place you get your news is from Eater, there's a problem there. They, they, they do a great job on some things and I cover their stuff a lot. I feature their content a lot, but when they drop the ball like this one, it's really, really sad to see and I'm not, saying you have to do a mini documentary on a restaurant in order to write about them. You're entitled to your own opinion, but at least make sure it's based in something real, like I'm not just writing for the case of being controversial. Um, again, I'm just one guy in my corner of the internet giving my opinion, but I'm trying to at least do it from a set of principles, right? Like you, you can guarantee on this show, I will not speak badly about a restaurant until I've experienced it, plain and simple. I promised you folks an update if you responded to me, so this is that. Uh, let's move on. Next story. Restaurant Manifesto, more specifically, Peter Camarero, published an article called The Truth About Restaurant Reservations, and I felt like it was worth a semi-deep dive. I'm going to read you folks a few lines from it to set the scene. Quote, making a restaurant reservation at a, making a, reservation at a busy restaurant can be a total clusterfuck. You have your favorite place on speed dial 30 days in advance, and when you finally get through, they're already booked solid but it's my brother, mother-in-law's 65th birthday and she loves your restaurant. You beg and plead on the phone, but to no avail. Even with advance notice, why is it so difficult for the average Joe to get restaurant reservations that they want? Some reasons are obvious, like supply and demand. There just aren't enough tables to accommodate everyone, but a few hidden truths are a little more eye-opening. These reasons include, quote, restaurants hold tables for VIP guests and regulars, private concierge services monopolize prime reservation times for their clients, no tables being available because of your party size, needing a connection to get in, and having a bad rap with restaurants just because of past dining experiences. And again, these are just kind of like the bolded headlines that I'm reading. But overall, I didn't learn anything earth shattering or th that I didn't already know from this article. But if you're just starting out, I think it's important to know about this kind of dynamic because a lot of times us as chefs think about our food being the product, but before you get that food in front of them, there's this entirely different transaction and customer experience that takes place when that customer books their table or buys their ticket or however you have it set up. It's like an entire micro industry, right? Like open up, open table, uh, resi, talk, all of these companies have built their businesses off the back of making a reservation. So it's 100% a huge deal, but my question for you to marry it on is how are you making that process just as pleasurable as eating your food for your guests? 
How can you make booking a seat an exciting and seamless experience for the guest before they even step foot into your restaurant? That's, that's my question for you to kind of ponder uh, through the rest of the episode and maybe through your, through your weekend. Next up is a semi-selfish uh, pro- self-promo news. Um, the last chef that I worked for in Bergen, Norway, Christopher Hatuft, has just opened his second restaurant. It is called Hogorm. It translates to viper or snake in Norwegian. The logo is literally a punk rock uh, snake with a slice of pepperoni pizza, which is definitely totally Chris. I totally see why they went in that direction. They're serving oysters and pizza and natural wine. This project has been in the works since I was there, which was over a year ago. Uh, So it's truly super inspiring to see it open and see all of uh, my old coworkers send me snaps and Instagram stories about what it's like to work there. Uh, So if you're in Bergen or if you're traveling to Norway, I 100% recommend you check it out. Let me know how it is. If you wanna do me a favor, go ahead and follow them on Instagram or like them on Facebook. They have a poll uh, going right now. I'll try to find it. Uh, that it says, uh, yeah, they did a poll asking, is pineapple good on pizza? And somehow it won with 56% saying yes. Uh, man, I wish I would have covered this yesterday so we could have flipped the stories in the other direction. Because for me, it's a definite no, just to make that completely clear. Uh, Next up, a suggestion from at ChiliHeadCliff on Instagram. It's really, really interesting story. I really recommend you read it if you're interested in this kind of stuff. It's from New Orleans. Um, They have a huge problem with Airbnb right now and people hosting short-term rentals. Doing that has caused a really polarizing dichotomy in the neighborhoods that are affecting this, the entire city in a sense, but specifically, uh, this, this article from Eater talks about the restaurant industry and how it's impacting them. I've linked it up if you want to dive deeper, but just some of the facts they include. New Orleans is a tourist town. People come from Mardi Gras, jazz festivals, and at the peak, tourists actually outnumber the locals 25 to 1, which is crazy. And where do they stay? They stay in Airbnbs. And with them extending their services to include restaurant reservations, which we covered a, a few episodes ago, Uh, The article says, quote, Airbnb reports that guests spent nearly 2.7 billion in the restaurant industry to trips to 29 cities in the US, Canada, and Latin America, around a $1 billion increase from the previous year. In New Orleans, Airbnb says guests spent 30 million on more restaurant industry, uh, on more than the restaurant industry between September 2016 and September 2017 than in previous years. And I'm pretty sure that's combined, which is crazy. So some people are calling it gentrification, some people are saying Disneyfication, some people are happy with the increase in audience and revenue. It's really, really fascinating article to read. It's semi-long-winded at points, but because these people are buying these homes and because they can guarantee revenue through Airbnb guests, it's much more than what a normal resident would afford to pay. And then that causes better Airbnb experiences because you essentially get this beautiful home. The article says that uh, 75% of Airbnbs in New Orleans are entire homes not just like one room in an apartment. So those people uh, then have extra cash to pay on, to spend on restaurants, but the restaurant community now can't afford to live there. You kind of see where this is going. It's like a crazy cycle. I personally have a hard time uh, getting a direct takeaway from this story. Like on one hand, I'm all for capitalism and if Airbnb sees a huge opportunity and they're profiting from it, good on them, right? Like that's just smart business. But if it wasn't them, someone else would have done it, right? Like if the opportunity is there, someone's gonna take it. 
Um, but at the same time, I totally empathize with the locals. Being here in Seattle, the rent prices are crazy because it was such an influx of people. Uh, and thank goodness the city built a shit ton of regular apartment buildings that actually have a really strict no Airbnb clause in their, in their leases. But it doesn't change the fact that the rent for locals is crazy because they're just, uh, I read an article that said it's like a thousand people a week move to Seattle, which is nuts. Um, but it's like, I'd rather, it, I always argue the same with Seattle people. Uh, it's like, I'd rather see the problem of too much revenue and not enough resources to satisfy the demand rather than like, no one wants to come to your city. You know what I mean? It's like a restaurant. Like if you get slammed with tickets night after night, it's a lot easier to work smarter, be more efficient, hire talented people. That part is exciting. Like building the business part is exciting. Uh, rather on the flip side, having a dead restaurant night after night, right? You see where the problem could be and how I'm, I'm an optimist at heart, obviously. It's just fascinating that with Airbnb, not often do you see one company causing these very real problems for a city. Amazon did it here in Seattle. It causes its own problems, but at the same time, it's such a colossal force of revenue for this city. It's literally a huge piece of the economy. So again, I, I, I empathize with both sides. Uh, I'm not one to complain. Just give me the information. How can we do better? Do you know what I mean? I prefer to react rather than dwell on like what it used to be like, uh, but that's just me. What are your thoughts on this story? I would really, really love to know. Get involved in the comments. I would love your folks' perspectives. Um, no Boss says, my themology seems interesting and we'll see how I keep up with Twitch. Uh, you're a cook too. Welcome welcome to the show. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in. Next story, to quote Eater on this one, the ink on modernist breads Modernist Bread's 52-pound dissertation on bread and its history is barely dry, but Nathan Mirvold, tireless inventor, scientist, trained chef, and creator of Modernist Cuisine is already on to his next book. And it's all about pizza, second pizza story in the show today. Yes, Mirvold says 400 pages had to be cut out from Modernist Bread, which warranted an entirely separate book. So it's not gonna be a six volume set, it's more than likely just gonna be just one book, but Francisco Migoya and Mirvold will be working on that over the coming months. A rep says the book is at least a year out, apparently after hearing all of these differing options on pizza and various regional styles, Mirvold says, quote, all of these styles, all of the pizziolos practicing their craft today, they're all making pizza, but they disagree on how to make it. So we're gonna try them all and see what's actually the truth, what works and what doesn't and why. Um, I personally read the first Modernist Cuisine cover to cover. I did not pick up the Modernist Cuisine, uh, was it Modernist Cuisine at Home or the bread set. I will probably skip this pizza book as well. Uh, I'd love to come hang out uh, with one of you and Twitch live stream me looking at it and getting like taking some notes, uh, but I'm not at a point where I wanna perform that kind of deep dive just quite yet. Um, but I can tell you that I'm a big fan of this project. Anything that these guys do, it's incredibly well-produced, well-researched, and it's beautiful and engaging. I'm just, I'm all about this kind of food education. So 100% supporting this kind of a, a, a project. Next up, uh, I don't know how it happened, uh, but I got sucked into a weird food and wine article rabbit hole and they put a cookie on me and followed me around the internet. So I wanna cover two articles from Food & Wine. One is semi-serious and one is semi-funny. The first one is called 10 Chefs Who Make Their Restaurants Happier, Healthier Places to Work. It's really, really interesting. They cover chefs from Amanda Cohen to Kelly Fields to Rick Bayless. It's kind of a short article. You can tell it was kind of like 
send these chefs an email, get a response back kind of article. They're kind of uh, just little short blurbs from the chefs. They get a little uh, insight from their Instagram. Um, but a couple interesting points that stuck out for me were, uh, for example, Dirt Candy doesn't do tipping. Their wages are apparently higher than normal. Uh, Willa Jean staff does a really competitive fitness program with their management team with boxing and Pilates. I thought that was really, really funny. Uh, Michael Golota does a, a really transparent process with salary and margins. He tells his staff exactly how much he makes, how much the restaurant makes, and then he asks them this question, how can you help me? And that's super interesting. I definitely had a much better grip on restaurant operations when I was a sous chef. Uh, when my chef in Norway let me look at the financials, it's kind of counterintuitive to the stereotype of not talking about money. A lot of people don't like to talk about money, but I've experienced it firsthand. When you have that radical transparency, if you have someone who can take that information and run with it, it's super, super valuable to share. So there's so much more from 50 hour work weeks instead of 100 hour work weeks to dope staff meals and more. I would definitely give it a read and share it with someone who needs to see it. I really, really recommend this piece if you're thinking about sustainability and happiness in your work environment. Next up, uh, from the same publication, again, like I said, I went on a bit of a food and wine binge, uh, but there's another article they created called 11 Chefs Share the Popular Menu Items They Created While Tipsy and Off the Clock. I'm going to kind of spare you the stories. You can read it if you want, but some of them include bourbon, bacon, peanut butter, chocolate chip cookies. Uh, Thai curry poutine, tater top breakfast casserole with pimento cheese. It's always really, really interesting to uh, see what uh, happens with leftovers when chefs get a hold of them, right? Like I feel like so many of the menu items at McDonald's and Taco Bell come from their employees just making food for themselves with whatever ingredients they happen to have in-house. And because they work with those products every single day, they're like dying for something new and exciting. And that's when innovation happens, right? Like. Long live the uh, cheesy gordita crunch, am I right? Anyways, last up in really unfortunate news. I mean, it's always unfortunate when this happens. Trump Towers, two Michelin starred Chicago restaurant 16 is going to close. And I say it's the, the title says close. It's kind of coming back in its, in its same space, but the restaurant as everybody knows it is going to close. And just to be really transparent here, Nick Dostal, the executive chef, and Adam Stark, I'm not sure if he's still gonna be there, the general manager, were both colleagues of mine back at Grace in Chicago. Nick Dostal was actually my station partner for a while. And this is not why I'm covering this story. I'm covering it because of what is going to happen after it closes. It is a, its current concept is gonna shut down on April 28th, that is the date, which is literally a month from today, basically. And after that, it's gonna reopen as a more casual concept. So what does that mean? Dostal uh, is saying that, quote, people are going out a lot more, which means more restaurants have to be more accessible. They don't want to save up for just one expensive dinner. If you look at any of the great chefs in the city, they're going in this direction, uh, end quote. So this direction doesn't have a name yet. He says, quote, there will be a bar in the dining room and a burger on the menu. According to Dostal, a diner will be able to get in and out for under $50 unless they choose to throw down and grab some of the more luxurious dishes on the menu, end quote. So Parag Lalit, the wine director, will stay on. He says he'll keep the wine list depth the same. Even more affordable bottles will get added. Because 
I mean, that's what they were known for. They were known for having a great wine list. Uh, that was the team. They had a service director, general manager. That was Adam Stark. Uh, Parag was the sommelier, the wine director. And then Nick Dossel was the executive chef. That was kind of their triple threat. So he's staying on, which is really exciting to see. But over the next month, between March 28th and April 28th, that was yesterday, uh, going into the next month, 16 will be throwing itself a blowout goodbye. They will be running a quote-unquote best of 16 menu, including dishes from the past chefs Thomas Lentz and Frank Brunacci, which will feature, of course, 16 courses for $220 a person, end quote. And we've seen this happen a couple different ways, right? Like I think about um, the Shaw Bijou realizing that it can't be its own standalone tasting menu concept. And then they pivoted last minute to kind of a cheaper, more accessible concept last minute. And then they ended up closing, which we've covered on the show before. I think about uh, John Shields restaurant in Chicago. That's two concepts under one kind of proverbial roof. Upstairs is the two Michelin starred Smith with kind of an ambitious and creative tasting menu. And meanwhile, downstairs is The Loyalist, which is a rowdy kind of bar where they have one of the best burgers in town. I had it in December and I actually ate at Smith the year before that for my birthday. It's just a crazy cool concept that crushes it in Chicago because they're able to offer both, right? Um, without being too scatterbrained. It's, it's, it's not me saying that a standalone tasting menu restaurant is impossible even though that's kind of what I'm saying. <clears throat> I can't really speak to the amount of revenue that they may or may not be getting from that Trump hotel and how the current kind of political climate has affected their business. But I mean, if you have the support of constantly rotating hotel clientele in that market demographic, right? Like you and your family of four is on a budget is not going to stay at the Trump hotel. So it's a high end market. And if a tasting menu only restaurant that earns two Michelin stars needs to go through change of concept, I think that says a lot. Uh, the economics just don't make sense. And you need that bistro, you need the trendy bar, you need the catering, cooking classes, the source of revenue that isn't two star food. Uh, and we see it across the industry. It's not enough just to do great food. And I've said it before, <clears throat> I haven't said it recently, so I'm saying it again. I know it's inspiring to cook with no rules and have creativity every day and do beautiful food and have a really intense service. But the reality is that 90% of restaurants fail. And of those, nine out of 10 have tasting menus. So uh, one out of 10 have tasting menus. So by being that standalone tasting menu restaurant, you're, you are the 1% of the 1% of restaurants. And if that's your main source of revenue, just start to think about other ways. Just start to think about diversifying yourself. I'm not dissuading anyone from doing it <clears throat> because one of you is gonna go out and do it and be a part of that 1%. But as someone who had a dream of a standalone tasting menu restaurant, I'm encouraging you to think about how you can bring in other revenue. Uh, it's not selling out. That's the easiest thing that comes in your mind is like, if I do catering, I'm gonna, just gonna be a sellout. If I do products, I'm gonna be a sellout. If I make freezer food, I'm going to be a sellout, but it's not, it's just smart business, right? Like it's a lot cooler to say that you have a happy staff and you can pay your bills every month rather than saying you're like such an artist and you have a studio or an atelier where you cook every night. You know what I mean? Uh, just think about it in a different way instead of being stuck in the rut of being this creative force of a chef. Anyways, 
I really wish Nick and the team at 16 continued success, even when their name is not 16 anymore. I haven't had the pleasure of eating there yet. I'm not gonna lie with this concept change. It really makes me want to go check it out now. Uh, they do have one of those legendary views of Chicago. So it's definitely on my list for the next time I go back to Chicago. Last up here on the industry side, I'm gonna call this uh, section direct answer. You guys send me a direct message. This is gonna be my direct answer. Of course, with your consent, I will not share your information if you don't want me to share it. Um, Chef Arosa on, Twitter, on Instagram sent me a message saying, uh, I was hoping the next emulsion episode, if you'd be able to cover how I go about setting up my pop-up dinners. And then I said, any specifics I can answer. And he said, I've got an idea for brick and mortar restaurant and I'm thinking of doing like I do and do more pop-up dinners to help build a base of people and get my name and food out there. I'm just wondering about how you do the pop-up dinners and find locations and kitchens for it. So hopefully Chef Arosa has watched my uh, video I did all about pop-up restaurants, but to hopefully more tactically answer your question, you gotta kinda gauge where you're at, right? Like if you already have a following, if you are, if people already know about your food, it's really easy for you to just tell them like, hey, I'm gonna be posting up here and cooking. If you wanna come check out my food, here's how you buy tickets. Um, and that's another completely different topic. I wanna make sure I'm answering your question properly. How I do the pop-up dinners and find locations and kitchens for it. Go ahead and what I would do is, what I did is go on the city that you're in and just search pop-up dinners Houston, or pop-up dinners Boston, or pop-up dinners Seattle, look at what pop-up dinners are being offered, and then double check where those chefs are doing their pop-up dinners at. Usually, they've already done the legwork for you, they've already made those relationships with people that uh, have venues, and you can just kind of slide in and just be like, hey, I saw that you're doing pop-ups, I have one that I wanna host with you guys as well, is there a way that you'd be interested in collaborating? and then the ball gets rolling. And always, don't be afraid to ask that question. If they say no to you, be like, do you know of any other venues in town that do pop-up dinners? Because they're already in that market, right? So they know what their competition is, they know what other uh, people are holding events and what their themes are and logistical questions and all that. I went through a little bit of a rant in that video about bartering and not uh, always exchanging money for that kitchen space. Sometimes you can offer exposure. Sometimes you can give them photos of people in their event. Say you have a photographer friend who can come for your pop-up, take photos of your food, and they can use it for marketing material. That might give you a discount off of rent. Like, how do you hustle it, right? Like pop-ups, it's OLR. It's operating with limited resources. You don't have a space of your own. You don't have a big team behind you. So you gotta figure out how you can hustle your way into being profitable or maybe just making things happen that wouldn't have previously been possible with you just by yourself. Uh, as far as doing the pop-up dinners, just make sure you're super organized. Just make sure you have a backup plan for everything. Things can and will go wrong. So what happens if you get there and the freezer's out or the fridge is not there? Like, do you have access to a cooler? Uh, what happens if one of the guests shows up 30 minutes late? How are you going to go about fixing that? Think of all these things in your mind. And again, another tip that I brought up in that video was to start small, start simple. What's the minimum food that you can produce to get people excited for your thing? I'm doing a 
project up in a neighborhood up here in Seattle with a friend of mine who wants to open her own space. And to help her get it off the ground, we're doing this event called Date Night at her private event space. So I'm not doing a full bore a la carte menu. I'm saying this is a set three or four course menu with a couple of snacks added on. This is the price and this is who I'm marketing it to. And people don't get a choice. You can buy a ticket, come and experience the food. And that is the minimum amount that I could do to make it exciting for those people. Think about that for you. I think about my friend who does donuts. I think about another friend who does mochi. There's another friend that I have who just does uh, like Malaysian food and she just does a set menu family style Malaysian food. Think about how your food can translate into that kind of thinking. Hopefully that answered your question. Um, got a little bit more tactical than my, than my videos. I try not to uh, make it an all encompassing answer because I know everybody's situation is different. It definitely helps when you folks give me very, very specific questions because then I can give you a little bit more advice in the videos. I try to make it a little bit more of an umbrella statement to help people because I just know everyone's different. Everyone's different. So lastly, in our non-industry story of the week, a quickie update, because I said I was gonna talk about it. Pacific Rim 2 was disappointing. I said it. Did anyone else think the same? I thought it was trying too hard. I kind of like, I liked parts of it, but the character development was just super predictable and quite frankly, boring. The fight scenes were all right, but overall it just fell short for me. It was kind of typical sequel vibes for me, I guess. They did tease at a third one, so hopefully that one is better. Moving on uh, again to our non-industry story, our real non-industry story. Two pieces of camera gear have my eye lately and I'm dying to upgrade. This is the first one is the A7 III by Sony. It is an updated, more powerful, feature-rich camera than the A7R2 that I shoot on right now. I know that I would be sacrificing some megapixels, but the upgraded battery is enough to make me want to sell this and get that. I would literally not lose any cash if I sold this because it's technically a more expensive body. I'm just obsessed with trimming it down. I'm not, I'm not going to get it. Don't worry. I'm, I'm really not going to get it. I just want to geek out with you folks. Also, Moment here in Seattle just released their anamorphic lens on Kickstarter. They, oh my God, $800,000. They wanted $50,000. They now have almost $800,000. Um, they tripled their goal in about three hours. People are just like, take my money. Uh, for those of you that aren't into cameras, they basically took the tech from an insanely expensive cinema camera lens and packed it into a lens for a phone for less than $200. It's an anamorphic camera lens. Um, I'm really, really excited about it. I'm not gonna probably get it. I might get it. It's just dope to see a company that's pushing boundaries and supporting creators in the way that they do. They didn't release like the product in an auditorium or in a fancy produced video. They literally made a vlog that was like 24 minutes long and they partnered with a bunch of YouTubers to make this, this release happen. Uh, so they're doing it right and I'm really, really happy to, to, to see that. I'm gonna partner with them shortly because they're right here in Seattle and I, and I love their stuff. So that will do it for this week's show and episode 58 specifically. If you have stories that you want covered next week, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. If you have questions for my upcoming guests, check, uh, check out that schedule and suggest new guests by visiting justincona.com slash podcast. 
Please subscribe and follow if you aren't already on whatever platform you're enjoying this show on. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes. That helps the show a lot. Regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears. Thank you, thank you for also making it to the end of the show. My name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.